0: That's kind of what the Beatitudes does for us. It shines a light into the dark places. It convicts us of our idolatries and brings us into a place where we see the risen Christ more clearly as to his character and in the calling to which he calls. So what does it look like for us in this cultural moment to intentionally radiate the hope of Christ? If it doesn't get us to that point, then the Beatitudes have not accomplished their intended purpose.
1: On today's episode, I speak with Chris Castaldo. Chris recently wrote a book on the Beatitudes called The Upside-Down Kingdom, Wisdom for Life from the Beatitudes. Chris is a pastor in Naperville, Illinois. He's also a former Catholic, and he shares about his journey of being a Catholic and then learning how to speak to Catholics about the gospel He also studied at London School of Theology, which is my alma mater. In fact, he did his doctorate under the same person I did my master's under. And so I was excited to read his book and have the chance to interview him. His book recently came out, published by Crossway. And in this interview, we talk about the Beatitudes, and we go from everything from talking about Constantine, Nietzsche, we get into politics, and a lot of really interesting things. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode very much, and stay tuned for the end. I'll have a few closing thoughts. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady, and I'm joined today by Chris Castaldo. Chris recently wrote a book called The Upside-Down Kingdom, Wisdom for Life from the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, of course, being one of the most well-known and popular parts of Jesus' teaching and the the writings in the Gospels. But I think that sometimes people don't, maybe they don't really understand what they're about, or maybe they don't really understand how to apply these things to their lives. So Chris, I'm excited to have you on the program. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Nick. And
1: uh, Chris, one of the things that, as I saw this come across my email, one of the things that excited me was the fact that you are a graduate of London School of Theology, which is my alma mater as well. I got my master's degree there, but you did doctoral work there, right?
0: I did under professor Tony Lane on the doctrine of justification. And if I'm not mistaken, you may have had opportunity to study with Tony as well.
1: Yep. Yeah. Tony was my, my mentor on my master's dissertation, which I did. So I was doing it on theological method and the perspicuity of scripture. And Tony's just awesome when it comes to historical theology. And so I really enjoyed working with him and I hope to have the opportunity to do that in the future as well. Right. Well, I just mentioned before the show,
0: I was there only two weeks ago and I always feel like a fish out of water in England. I'm always walking on the wrong side of the sidewalk and terrorizing people as they come straight at me. But despite all of that, it was a marvelous visit.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So you mentioned doctrine of justification. That brings me into one of the first things I wanted to ask you about was, first of all, I want you to introduce yourself and where you serve, but then I want to talk a little bit about your background with Catholicism and the topic of justification. So maybe you could just begin by letting us know a little bit about you.
0: Right. So I was born and raised on Long Island, New York, as a Roman Catholic, had a terrific experience in my local parish under the oversight of Monsignor Tom, but I never quite understood the grace of God. I always had this notion of God standing with his arms folded, his toe tapping waiting for me to get my act together, to attend enough holy days of obligation and to observe enough sacramental rites to secure his favor. So, so I lived and then eventually I received news that my dad had a major heart attack. So at once I was thrust into the leadership role of our family business. The waterline of anxiety is, is rising every day. And that's when an employee of ours began to share the good news with us. So Long Island, you have Catholic people, Jewish people, and then other, you know, there's very little familiarity with Protestantism. So she would leave these index cards on my desk with verses of scripture to encourage me. And at first I dismissed it as propaganda from a flaky employee. But as the the stress became more intense, I began to read them. And derived a measure of comfort. And then eventually I went to church with her on a Wednesday night, first time in a Protestant church. I feel like a pork chop in a synagogue. I I don't know where I am or what's going on. But eventually the preacher gets up. Now you need to envision sort of a young Billy Graham combined with Al Pacino, you know, pinky ring waving, olive green double breasted suit, big Bible. And he says, There's someone here looking for. Life's purpose And it spoke right to me. So in good Protestant fashion, I responded to a gospel invitation by praying to receive Christ right there, and that was the turning point. Wow,
1: well, so from that turning point, I think that brings us right up to the question of studying justification, and you've done some writing on helping evangelicals talk about the gospel with Catholics. I'd love to just hear more about that and what are some of the things. What was part of that journey for you? I mean, it's one thing to you know, respond to an altar call, I think it's another thing to completely change your understanding of justification. So yeah, tell me a little bit about it.
0: Right. Well, to continue the the personal story, eventually I go to Bible college, then I go to seminary at Gordon Conwell, and then I I arrive in Wheaton, Illinois to serve on staff at College Church. I'm shepherding a number of couples consisted of a Roman Catholic and a Protestant And their marriages were falling apart. So I was there as the pastor saying, look, to be sure there are differences between our traditions, but there's enough common ground here for your marriage to survive. So I offered a class one night, and this is our midweek discipleship program. There were 70 people who showed up to understand more about Catholicism. So it became clear this is a need. And that's really the focal point. How do we understand one another so that we can respond to questions and concerns, so that we can engage relationship in a way that showcases the redemption of Christ, that properly conveys mercy and truth. John 1.14, Jesus came full of grace and truth. So if you were to summarize what my work in this area has been about, it's helping evangelicals primarily to embody the good news in a way that elucidates the character of Christ among Catholic friends and loved
1: ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. And you've written some on that. What are some titles maybe that people could look up?
0: The first book I wrote is called Holy Ground, Walking with Jesus as a former Catholic. And that was born out of my own frustration, frankly, trying to understand what it means to be accepted by grace alone, through faith alone. You know, a lot of Catholics struggle with guilt shame. Mm-hmm. We talk about Catholic guilt. That was Great. very much my case. So, you know, that was written primarily for the person who's now trying to work out his newfound evangelical faith as a former Catholic. But then talking with Catholics about the gospel is the one that explores some of the practical ways we, we understand and relate to Catholic friends and loved ones.
1: Well, just, I mean, not to get away from our main topic here, but what do you think would be one way maybe that you could just throw out now that is an effective way of of talking about the gospel with Catholics.
0: Right. So we who care about doctrine, the Bible, the gospel, very often view this whole enterprise of relating to Catholics as a zero-sum game. If I'm faithful to the gospel, well, then I have to be anti-Catholic, you see. Because at the Council of Trent, the, the, the church, that is the Church of Rome, leveled its canons against faith alone. And, and that logic, I'm afraid, undermines our gospel witness. It's mm-hmm. missionally disastrous. And so if, if I were to summarize what I've been trying to say all these years, it's, yes, let's be serious about doctrine. Let's get the details right. And at the same time, let's manifest the, the charity and the grace and, and the, the warm hearted relationship that is true of Jesus, that life to which he calls us.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I'll put some links to the show notes in the show notes for those books. But today we're here to talk about the Beatitudes and the book that you wrote on the Beatitudes. Let's begin with this. Like, what do you think are some common misreadings or misconceptions about the Beatitudes?
0: Yeah, sometimes we understand the Beatitudes to be so demanding that it can only be observed by Christians who are overachievers, the elite. Maybe. You know, through the history of the church, it's been the, the conspicuous people of holiness, monks, and other clerics who observe the Beatitudes. But for the rest of us, well, it's just asking a bit too much. That's a misconception. Similarly, the idea that the Beatitudes puts the bar so high that it, it leaves us feeling guilty and ashamed because we can never quite reach it. That too is a a misconception. And so it becomes an occasion for self-loathing because I look into my own heart and I see anything but meekness or purity of heart. Instead, I think the vision of the Beatitudes is the life of God that we have available in Jesus. It is, if you will, an invitation to walk with the Savior, to experience his priorities, the rhythms of the kingdom, and we're going to do it imperfectly. But we have the Holy Spirit who, who is supporting us and animating us in such a way that we are able to live in keeping with these virtues in an increasing measure. And so this idea of invitation, invitation into life in the kingdom, I think that's what the Beatitudes are presenting.
1: Yeah, wonderful. I, I saw in the book as I read it that you mentioned that Robert Schuler had written a book on the Beatitudes. Can I give right. me a hot take on Robert Schuller's book on the realitudes? Well, Beatitudes.
0: right. So Robert Schuller, for those who may not remember, was a megachurch pastor from California. And he was very much indebted to Norman Vincent Peale, regarded by many as the father of positive thinking. It was Peale who said, you know, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. So this interesting marriage of Christian doctrine with positivism, self-help, and, and the like. And so, yeah, his book, um, was popular at one time the, I think it was perhaps the be happy attitudes, right? And what he does is he says, you know, these statements of Jesus are about happiness and, you know, over against our low self-esteem and tendency toward negativity, we, we need to embrace these promises so that we could be happy people. Now, Augustine uses the word happy. There's actually a, a very rich theological tradition that extends from this word happiness, but its I'm afraid it's just too shallow. It's just too superficial. You, know, you and I are happy, Nick, if we find a good parking space, right? You know, the, What Jesus is presenting there, uh, goes much deeper than our own contentment, our own experience of joy. It reaches down to the bottom of who we are, our identity and our calling. It takes us by the hand. And it leads us into the places where Jesus wants to shine the light of
1: redemption. Yeah, that's really good. I have heard other teachings on the Beatitudes, which I thought were surprising. Okay, so one time, just hearing someone teach on it and really just taking it as the Beatitudes, the attitudes that you need to be. And essentially, it was, you know, to use the, the concept, it's like putting just rocks in your backpack. Hey, here's some things that you're not doing well. But you should do them. And if you don't, you know, you're not going to be happy. And I, I, I'm I, not sure that that was the most helpful way to approach it.
0: Yeah. And that's where the idea of invitation, I think, is helpful, right? Because it is a high calling. Again, let's just remember, we're talking about poverty of spirit and mourning and meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know, any of us with a modicum of self-awareness and honesty will recognize we fall short of those things regularly. And so it can so easily lead to the, the bag of rocks, like you said. But Jesus is saying instead, look, I have another way for you to live. It's very different from the world. It's altogether counterintuitive and countercultural. But, but if you'll step into this mode, if, if you'll follow me, Jesus says, you'll discover that suddenly the burden and the fear and the weight that, that so occupied your attention no longer feels so burdensome. You know, I think somewhere I quote, Michel de Montaigne, who said, My life has been full of terrible misfortune, most of which has never happened. Now, yeah. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that, right? <laughs> we, we we sort of worry about worst case scenarios. But Jesus is saying, in relationship with me, when you're pursuing my priorities, the things of this world no longer present
1: themselves as as so intimidating.
0: And that is the life to
1: which he's calling us. Yeah. Have you ever encountered like Martin Lloyd-Jones, he had a way of teaching the Beatitudes in which he would essentially portray them as like steps, if you will, that lead to the, the good life according to Jesus. And, and of course, many of them are counterintuitive, right? Weeping, suffering, et But you know, essentially he says that the first step is recognizing your spiritual poverty, right? And then weeping over it is, he says, step number two. And then you go on this journey of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So he paints it as kind of like the, the entire journey of, of Christianity from recognition of sin to receiving justification by faith to walking out and following Jesus in practice, which, of course, leads to persecution and the like. What, what's your take on that? I know that he at least portrays it as being something that was reflected by the Church Fathers— and so I haven't gone that deep into it to know if that's true, but my guess is that you have. So I'd love to hear right. your take on it.
0: Yeah, right. They hang together. They're they're integrally related. We cannot be peacemakers, for example, until we ourselves first embrace poverty of spirit and meekness. We have the right heart with which to extend peace to others. So I think the principle applies. I wouldn't go so far as to say you must apply one to get to two, to get to three. There are some who have interpreted that way. Rebecca Eklund has written a fabulous book for Erdman's on the history of interpretation of the Beatitudes. Really. And in that book she explains that there's there's not a great deal of historical evidence to support that thesis in a in a strict, thoroughgoing way. So I wouldn't want to overstate it, but I certainly would want to affirm the relationship of these beatitudes, and that we, we can't very well blow one off and ex- expect to succeed in fulfilling other ones.
1: Yeah, interesting. I'm going to check that book out. But let me get into some specific questions that I thought were interesting as I read through your book. On page 19, you mentioned that kingdom, this is a word which has social, political, and religious overtones because it's a movement which transcends private spirituality. I thought that was really an important point, this idea of the kingdom of heaven bookending the Beatitudes, right? In Matthew 5, verse 3, and then in Matthew 5, verse 10. So please just expound on that idea of how, when we talk about kingdom, we're talking about more than just your private religious experience, um, and why is a proper understanding of kingdom important for, Christian, for Christians today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it starts with the heart.
0: We come to the end of ourselves and we embrace the mercy of God in Christ. That's what redeems us. But then God wants to extend his hand of mercy through us. The beatitude that conveys this most clearly, I think, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is, as you know, a long debate over the meaning of that word righteousness. And typically it's understood in one of three ways. We who are in The Reformed tradition tend to emphasize the forensic, that is to say, our righteousness before God, that we are his children. We are embraced on the basis of what Jesus has done. So it's something legal. It's something vertical, if you will. Mm -hmm. It is righteousness to us. But then that righteousness works within. The Holy Spirit is given to renew the soul. And there are certain traditions, holiness traditions, think of Wesleyanism at its best and and Pentecostalism, that emphasizes the working of the spirit in the heart, right? And so it's righteousness to us, it's righteousness in us, but it can't stop there. God's hand of righteousness, it must extend through us into the world. And that is a a social righteousness or social justice, a biblically chaste understanding of social justice, whereby we are caring for the poor and disenfranchised. We're protecting the widow and we're, we're manifesting the, the life of Christ in very practical ways. And so it, I think the vision of the Beatitudes is that full sweep, right? It starts with our acceptance, righteousness before God. It reaches down into, into the nooks and crannies of our soul. And then it extends from us, that is from the church or through the church to bring tangible, hope, and healing to the world.
1: Now, some people, when they hear that word social justice, they just labeled you as a right. liberal, as a social justice warrior. And right. they say, this is what's wrong with Christianity. We're getting co-opted by the social justice movement, when instead we should be you know, teaching individual righteousness and individual transformation. So what would you say to the person who their antenna? goes off as soon as they hear right. the word social justice, what would you as a theologian and pastor say to that person?
0: Well, I, I would affirm the concern. There's a lot happening today in the name of social justice that's very far from the Bible and often at odds with the Bible. So it's a legitimate concern that I share. That's why I, I modified the word with biblically chaste you know, phrase, because w- we need to use scripture as the lens for defining our calling in this area. It is the case that in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, the word that we translate righteousness can also be translated justice. So they're one in the same. So we could say social righteousness, I suppose. But we're, we're really talking about the manifestation of God's presence, of his saving power in ways that make this world look a little bit more like the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. That's the concern of the Beatitudes. But it's a conversation we need to have. And of course, the pastors are in the middle of this. On one hand, you need to speak meaningfully to how God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. But, But as soon as you begin to use this language, which is biblical language, justice, you can very easily be misunderstood. And so, you know, this is the, the, the cultural moment in which we live, and this is why grace and mercy and long-suffering are so vitally needed.
1: We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors.
0: The gospel is the hope of the world, and the world needs more gospel centered churches. That's why Cultivate by CGN exists. I'm Clay Worrell, Executive Director of CGN, and I'm here with my friend,
1: Pastor Nick Cady. We want to take a moment to let you know about the Cultivate Church Planter Training Program. Cultivate has created the infrastructure to support the planting of 1,000 new churches in the next decades, starting in 2023. We follow in the footsteps of renowned church planters in the Calvary Chapel movement, embracing and adopting their rich heritage of church planting in order to transmit our values, theology, and philosophy of ministry to this generation and for those to come.
0: You know, as church planters ourselves, we understand that planting a church is not an
1: easy task but we believe it's an essential one. That's why we've created a range of resources to help you and your team prepare for the journey ahead. Our resources are personal, practical, and pastoral. Our program is from six to 24 months and is designed to equip you to lead a gospel-centered community wherever God has called you around the world. We also have a global team of mentors and coaches with thousands of hours of experience planting and pastoring churches. And they're ready to support you in the training phase, the launch phase and in the post-launch phase of planting a church.
0: With our guidance and support, you can feel confident in your ability to engage the world for Christ. Are you ready to answer the call of church planting? Together we can make a difference and bring the hope of the gospel to communities around the world. If you're ready to take the next steps and learn more about our church planting program, we invite you to visit our website at cultivatechurchplanting.com.
1: So let me ask you another question. I found it interesting that you have a take on Sheol. And I'd love for you to expound on what you understand Sheol to mean. You explain it as being related to the idea of the shadow of death, meaning it's not just a place you go when you die, but it's a way that even life is experienced here on earth. Did I ex- understand that correctly? Yeah, right,
0: right. It's when the heaven seems brass and we can't see God through eyes of faith. I've visited a friend from church recently who just lost his wife tragically sooner than anyone anticipated. And he was in that place, I would say, of Sheol, where he was so weighed down with grief, you know, where sorrows like sea billows roll that you, you, you can hardly lift your eyes above the horizon mm. to recognize the presence of God. And, and we live there at times. And the and the beatitudes speaks to that, and we'll, I can't quite recall where I use that, where that appears, but it might be in the section on mourning, and and because as Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Uh, and this, I'm afraid, is a discipline we have lost in the church—lament, right? Because I believe that this calling to lament is is not an option for those who might be sensitive spiritually, it's essential for all of us. The, the, the lamenting person is not the one who's just, you know, looks like they've been sucking on a lemon or drinking embalming fluid and they're like you are. No, it's the person who looks around and, and is honest about the fact that we're in a broken world and we lament that. And every day we have opportunity to call attention to this brokenness, but that's not where it ends. The good news is that God's presence abides with us in Christ by the Spirit. Mm. And that's where the promise of comfort comes into play. That in my distress, my friend Dave grieving his wife, he has access to divine resources. And in those moments when, when we're overwhelmed, it can be very difficult to embrace those resources. And that's where the church comes in. That's when we surround one another. With empathy, and we 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 don't say more than we we're not like Job's friends. We don't try to fix it, but we just enter into one another's pain. So, a long answer to a simple question: Why is lament so needed? I think it's it's central to our human experience, and the church has the ability to deal with it.
1: Yeah. So going back to like Martin Lloyd Jones and his take on the Beatitudes, in a way, it might be. A bit reductionistic to say that the kind of lament or mourning that, that that is talking about there in that particular passage is only related to personal recognition of sin. Like Essentially, I think what you're saying is it goes beyond just recognizing that you're a sinner and mourning that fact, but it also extends to the fact that we live in this broken world, that we also lament and, and experience loss
0: one way yes, that i experienced
1: right. yeah one way that i experienced lament in a in a great way was that we just went to ukraine we i've been doing work in ukraine for you know like 15 years or so and we just went there in march to work with some of our friends and partners in ministry and the first night, that was a big focus of what we did. And one of my colleagues and one of the pastors that I was with, he taught on lament. He had been studying it in school during his master's program. And I could just see how how helpful it was for these Christians, you know, because in evangelicalism, there have been some parts of it, you know, that are essentially what you might call... Triumphant. Yeah, triumphalist, I guess, is actually the word I was looking for. Triumphalist Christianity, which... It seems to have no place for lament. It's about enthusiasm and excitement and positivity, but struggles with the idea of of lament. And then when you face things like war and loss, a lot of Christians aren't really sure where to put that or how to to process it. And so just this welcome or this invitation into lament, but that lament isn't just complaining about what's wrong in the world. It takes this turn of faith and trust in God after making its sincere questions known. I saw how you know important that was, especially for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Yes.
0: Yeah. I just returned from Italy and then England for a month where I did some ministry. One of the places we went to was Torre Pellice, which is in Piedmont, Northwest of Italy. That's where the Waldensians lived. And, you know, they were bitterly persecuted, but I was interested to learn that as they ran up the mountains, those Alpine mountains to escape. And, and many of them lost their lives, they would sing the Beatitudes. This is what our tour guide said. I thought, how interesting is that? And it's because they recognize this experience of persecution as basic to the Christian life. That's what happens when you follow a crucified Savior. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, to your point, I, I think a triumphant understanding of the faith doesn't allow for that sort of vision.
1: Yeah, and I mean we we do understand of course that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and yet we live in this this broken and fallen world. So I think that's where, you know, remembering that Jesus said this phrase, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted is is so important. And so would would you say like that that's essentially like an eschatological statement in the sense that you mourn now and you will be comforted both now and for eternity
0: entirely. And this represents another difference between our generation and previous ones. And thank God, by the way, for the blessings we enjoy, you know, that we're not called to be masochists, we're called to be grateful. But other times and places, or, or of course today in, in the Ukraine, you know, there are believers who find themselves in the crucible and there's very little in this world that we can look at and, and celebrate in those moments. And that's where our, our blessed hope to come makes all the difference. Hmm.
1: Okay, another question for you on pages 40 and 41. You talk about Constantine. I thought this was really interesting. It's a, in the section about meekness, blessed are the meek. You talk about how Constantine essentially represents what you call, quote a muscular Christianity that rules by coercion, intimidation, even violence, wielding the sword in the name of Christ. And then you ask the question, so then what is the proper role of authority in the Christian life? And so I wanted to ask you, what does the answer to that question, the question of like, what is the proper role of authority in the Christian life? How does the, how does the way we answer that question shape the way we think about and relate to politics? Yeah,
0: great question. Constantine is understood as the father of of ecumenism and religious peace because he allowed Christianity to be one of the religions of the Roman Empire. But he also represents, as you said, this m- muscular approach. He had his vision, of course, on October 28th, 312, where in the sky he sees Entautinica conquered by this. So with their sor- swords drawn, they went and won the victory in the name of Christ. Well, yes. Yeah, so you asked the right question, Nick. How does that relate in t- today in this political moment? Wow. Matt, let me say something a little controversial, if I may, because the, the beatitudes also urge us to be prophetic. Mm. I'm concerned that on both sides of the political aisle, the church is, is being co-opted. True, you know, candidly, I, I sit on the conservative side, and I'm with my relatives just two days ago for the Fourth of July, and they shared with me these are family members older than I these videos of how christians are being wronged and what's what's happening now in society and how how devastating it is now i and we're talking about threats to the to the unborn and threats to children in the public school and we, you know the sorts of things we we commonly read about in the news at least conservative news media i share those concerns god's heart breaks over those things we need to care we need to speak to it. But here's my concern. If one is, is consuming conservative news media, any news media, you are being led to get angry and upset and combative and militant. And as I was listening to relatives who, who are mature Christians, when I heard them talking about all the ills of society, and they were hopping mad. And my fear is we... We get on that militant bandwagon, culture wars, and we no longer talk about Jesus and redemption and repentance. We don't do evangelism because Mm -hmm. we're so riled up about what's happening in, in our local communities and nation. So I think the beatitude speaks to that. And uh, you know, I'm preaching this Sunday (laughs) and I know not everyone's going to be happy with what I have to Say. say. Here's the point, the gospel is the leading edge mm-hmm. of who we are and what we have to say to the world. And yes, we, should be, we must be salt of the earth and light, speaking meaningfully to these issues of social concern. But what's supreme is the message of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid the church is, is, finds itself, particularly as we approach this election year, confused about that call. Mm.
1: It reminds me of Second Timothy. You know, it's so interesting. In chapter 3, Paul begins by saying, there is coming a time in the end days when people will be lovers of self and disobedient to parents. And he goes on this long list of, you know, the ills that will characterize society in the end days or the last days, which he calls them. But then it's interesting what he says to do about it to Timothy. He says, preach the word. And he tells him over and over to preach the word, right? And preach the word. And he's had such a focus, Paul has in First and Second Timothy, on like, what is the gospel? And then at the end, they're saying, hey, there's coming a time when the world is, there's going to be some dark days ahead. And here's what you are called to do in response to those dark days. It isn't to, you know, I guess, fight at the fight or shout at the darkness, rather. it's It's to preach the word. And I think that what you're saying there is... Is reflective of that,
0: and we will be persecuted for it, hmm. and we will we will be on the you know in some cases what people call the losing side of history, whatever. But that's what it looks like to follow a crucified savior. So yeah, let's do what we can. I'm I'm not saying we we allow evil to happen, but let's be clear about the the, the priority
1: and what will. On the last day, what will give an account for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you described something I thought was really interesting on in that chapter in meekness. You talked about how there's a reason why people respect a lion tamer, and if you look at it, the lion tamer isn't more powerful than the lion. He's not beating the lion. He's not, you know, tasing the lion. What he's doing is he's using his skills to tame the lion through calmness. And you said that's essentially the essence of meekness. It's having power that isn't using coercion, force, the sword, and violence in order to get its means, but it's using a a higher power. I mean, would you agree with that? Does that make sense? Right,
0: right. And, you know, the world is diametrically opposed to the kingdom. David Wells said, worldliness is anything in culture that makes sin look normal, righteousness look strange. And and one of the, the messages of the world is that you must Apply yourself with force. You must dominate, you know, to be meek is to be weak. And and you mentioned Nietzsche earlier, but the message of Jesus is completely contradictory to that. The way up in in victory is the way down. And the cross, of course, being the supreme example of that, Jesus gave his life. The kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. And then by the inexplicable power of God, it, it is raised from the dead to new life. We understand that to be our story in regard to conversion. That's basic. But what I'm suggesting is that is, in fact, the pattern of life on a regular basis, that we self-consciously descend in, in that humility and meekness. We, we find ourselves in a difficult place, the valley. But God is faithful to deliver us from the valley. And, uh, and I think it's, it's that pattern of dissent, trust, and a final resur- finally resurrection that we need to understand more clearly.
1: Yeah, I think that's a beautiful concept. I think sometimes what people struggle with understanding is like, okay, what does that look like on a Tuesday, right? Like in my life personally. And a friend of mine, a pastor friend, Brian Broderson, he recently, we were at a conference and we were talking about this topic. And he he recently said something I thought was really interesting. He said that, to live out this ethic, what it means in some cases is being willing to lose, because we believe that there is coming a kingdom, that Jesus is returning, that there, he is coming a kingdom, he's establishing his kingdom, which is now in part and will be in full. But he said that to really believe that, sometimes it looks like, like being willing to sacrifice, lay down, and and even lose in some cases. And I think that that's not a very popular message for for many people today. Well,
0: look at Paul, for example. I preached on the book of Acts recently. And, you know, he goes into a city, he preaches. Some people like him. They want to hear more. But pretty soon there's a big crowd that opposes him. And they drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. as It's in, in, almost to death as in Lystra. And, you know, you wouldn't use the word popular to describe Paul's ministry. And yet he was the instrument by which the kingdom forcefully. That's, that's who we are. That is our call.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's great. It's really good. Yeah, and I mean, Paul—that's what Second Corinthians is all about, right? Like Paul's like, when I'm weak, then then I'm strong in the Lord. And he says there, I will not boast in the things that show my strength, but I'll boast in the things that show my weakness, because in those times, that's when God's strength is manifested in me. So yeah, that's really good. Now let me ask you. You brought up Nietzsche. Nietzsche claimed that Christianity creates passive emasculated men under the banner of meekness. What would be your response to that?
0: Right. So for, for Nietzsche, it was the, the Uberman, the Superman, right? And uh, the problem with Christianity is this notion of weakness that, that prevents men from being all that they are supposed to be. And, uh, right. and, and so Nietzsche in many ways articulates the philosophy of this world Apply yourself in such a way that you prevail, that you dominate. And Jesus' whole life and ministry illustrates a different pattern. For Jesus, it was meeting people in their pain and sorrow, empathizing with them, listening to them, and understanding that redemption comes not because we have it all together. It gets very practical at this point, not because my church has the, the best model of ministry and methods and resources. No, no, the the kingdom advances despite us. We're we're kidding ourselves if we think that our wisdom and and our organizational savvy is going to win the day. No, it's pride. I'm limping. And so the Beatitudes really brings that into focus and, and confronts us in those places where we regard ourselves as sufficient.
1: That's good. So final question for you is just this. You ask in the conclusion to the book, you ask how will you respond to the beatitudes? So maybe you could just expound on that idea for a second. What are some wrong ways to respond to the beatitudes and what are some intended or good or right ways to respond to the beatitudes?
0: Yeah. I think it's twofold. I I think it means looking into your soul, allowing the beatitudes to to provide the clarity of of where one is, you know i I was watching a documentary on on that involved a dredging of a river, and they were cleaning up this town. It was very interesting, and the ridger the river had become polluted, and so they had this process whereby they had to they had to send these barges through that that sent down these these units that thoroughly cleaned the bottom of the river and I thought, wow if if that looked really painful. Like if, if, if a river had emotions and feelings, that would hurt. Well, that's kind of what the Beatitudes does for us. It, it shines a light into the dark places. It convicts us of our idolatries and brings us into a place where we see the risen Christ more clearly as to his character and in the calling to which he calls. So that's the first thing, is, is getting to that place of sobriety where, where we deal with the, the sin in our hearts. The second thing, though, is to see the people around us as it lost and, and in need of this message. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the Beatitude starts in chapter four, right, just beforehand. Jesus is announcing the kingdom, repent, the kingdom's at hand. And then at the very end, you have, you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And so it's sort of framed by gospel witness. And I think that's significant. So, so what does it look like for us in this cultural moment to intentionally radiate the hope of Christ? If it doesn't get us to that point, then the Beatitudes have not accomplished their intended purpose.
1: So again, the title of the book is The Upside-Down Kingdom, Wisdom for Life from the Beatitudes. Chris, is there a way that people can connect with you online? Is there ways that they, if they want to know more about what you're writing or what you're up to, that they can find that?
0: Yeah, my website is simply chriscostaldo.com. And I blog regularly. You'll, you'll find articles on the Beatitudes and on some of the other topics we discussed concerning Roman Catholics and Protestants.
1: Excellent. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Nick. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If there's ever a topic you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, when new episodes are posted, they will be delivered right to your podcast app. And if this episode was helpful, please share it with others. If you'd like to support the podcast, one of the best ways you can do that is by leaving a written review on either the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. That really helps boost this show in their ratings and helps other people discover it. So if you would do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and until next time, God bless you.